Hi, welcome to the On Your Marks book review podcast with me, Jonathan Marks. This week I review the book Enlightened Entrepreneurs, Business Ethics in Victorian Britain. This wonderful book, published in 2007, was written by Ian Bradley, now Professor Emeritus at the School of Divinity at the University of St Andrews. Professor Bradley was reader in church history and practical theology at St Andrews, a church minister, broadcaster, and widely published author. This little gem of a book came to me via a colleague, Dr. Peter Heslam, who started and runs a project at both Oxford and Cambridge universities called Transforming Business, an initiative that seeks to connect business to faith and religious values. The book is an honest and gentle appraisal of the lives of 10 entrepreneurs who flourished in Victorian England over a span of 125 years. What marks these entrepreneurs was the profound role that their faith played in both their business and philanthropic lives. Bradley presents the 10 chapters chronologically as a brief case of each entrepreneur's life. Some are well known to us all, Jeremiah Coleman, Coleman Mustard, Andrew Carnegie, a U.S. steel magnate, George Cadbury of Cadbury Chocolates, Joseph Roundtree, Roundtree Sweets, Jesse Boot of Boots Pharmacy, and William Lever of Lever Brothers and Unilever. Others were new to me. Thomas Holloway, who developed and sold patent medicine, Sir Titus Salt, who created fabric mills and worsted fabric, Samuel Morley, the knitwear and underwear industry, and George Palmer of Huntley and Palmer Biscuits. There are a few other things that unite this group. Yes, they are all men. I know that in our obsessively woke times this is absolutely anathema, and I should throw myself on the pyre for just having read such a book that is focused on a group of ten white men. However, before you light the match and dance gleefully as I burn, remember that this is a historical work, and the circumstances of the 1800s being what they were, it was unlikely that a woman entrepreneur, no matter how capable, would have achieved what these men did, given the societal norms of the time. So bear with me, these stories are wonderful, and there is much to gain for all entrepreneurs and for the philanthropic among us. Common among the group is that none of them were educated beyond basic schooling. Most left school around the age of 13 and began working, sometimes as apprentices and other times for small family businesses, before becoming successful industrialists. These men all came from humble beginnings, and in some cases were exceptionally poor. Not poor as in you are still using an iPhone X rather than the new iPhone 13, but poor as in siblings dying from hunger and having to start work, often in deplorable conditions, from a very young age to contribute to the support of the family. As industrialists, all apart from Carnegie made their fortune in Britain, although in many cases their products were distributed around the world. No easy feat in a world that didn't have today's logistics infrastructure or viral marketing methods. The group also shared a political ideology. They were imbued with Victorian liberalism, which stood for self-help, free trade, minimal government interference and internationalism. Indeed, all values that would benefit them as industrialists. But they also stood for tolerance, generosity, democracy, popular representation and radical social reform. The group, apart from two, Holloway and Carnegie, were part of the religious non-conformist movement. 
This too would play a profoundly important role in their philanthropic endeavours and their enlightened beneficence. A few were active in local and national politics, always within the liberal movement, and had the livelihood of their workers and communities in which they lived close to heart. For some, this in fact became their major philanthropic cause during their lives, to make an improvement to the lives of their employees and workers. With the passage of time, reading these accounts seems profoundly paternalistic, and it probably was, but it was done with good grace and genuine desire to improve the deplorable living conditions in which the working class lived in Victorian England. In a few cases, that of Titus Salt with Saltaire, Cadbury's Bourneville, and Lever's Port Sunlight, they bought vast amounts of land often adjacent to their factories on which they built model communities for their workers. Yes, in many cases, these communities reflected the values of the entrepreneur, which were, I guess, imposed on their workers, but they also provided beautiful housing, parks, healthcare, pensions, sport facilities, schooling, education, and space to breathe clean, fresh air. As many businesses were located in the industrial heartland of England, the inner city conditions were not conducive to healthy, clean living, which drove these entrepreneurs to invest their wealth and time in that which was closest to them. A maxim by which many lived was beautifully articulated by Jeremiah Coleman, and I quote, Influence, position and wealth are not given for nothing, and we must try and use them as we would wish at the last we had done. End quote. Many of these enlightened entrepreneurs were part of the temperance movement and worked hard within their sphere to address the evils of liquor. They realized that in many cases the lot of the working man was such that they had few choices but for the local public house, and so they set out to provide such alternatives, offering, as Sir Titus Salt said, it is intended to supply the advantage of a public house without its evils. It will be a place to which you can resort for conversation, business, recreation and refreshment, as well as education, elementary, technical and scientific. End quote. This led, in the case of Samuel Morley, to the creation of what is today the Old Vic Theatre in London, which was initially started and funded by him to offer these distractions and intellectual stimulation, but without the temptation of alcohol. The book presents two broad approaches to philanthropy which seem to have been followed by the group. The first was to make philanthropic contributions through one's lifetime. As wealth was gained, these individuals invested in their employees and communities and various worthwhile causes close to their interests or values. The other was to amass wealth in the first part of their lives, and then spend it in the second part. There are many examples in the book of both approaches, and I'd like to share one of each with you now. The example of the latter, amassing wealth and then giving it away, would have to be Andrew Carnegie. While he made his wealth in the US, he was born in Scotland in very poor conditions. His family moved to the US, when he was just a small boy, and he initially worked as a bobbin boy in a cotton factory, a job that entailed ferrying bobbins of cotton back and forth to the women who worked the looms in these factories. He earned £1.40 a week, all of which was given to his family, and eventually by dint of his effort and the recognition of opportunity, particularly in the iron and steel sector, he finally sold his steel business in 1901 for $480 million dollars the equivalent today of around $16 trillion. At the time he sold his business to J.P. Morgan, he was the wealthiest man in the world. 
He claimed later in his life that giving away his money was far more challenging than making it. When he was asked why he was so generous, he replied, Why shouldn't I give my money to the American people? They gave it all to me in the first place. He believed in self-help and always provided only part of the means, wanting others to do what they could to improve themselves. This didn't stop him making an indelible mark on both sides of the Atlantic, as both an entrepreneur and a philanthropist. Apart from the creation of multiple trusts that continue today to give away the Carnegie fortune, he created more than 2,500 libraries, a university, Carnegie Mellon, and the world-famous Carnegie Hall in New York, where Tchaikovsky was the opening night act. In one particularly personal gesture, he bought the park in his hometown in Scotland to make it open and free for all people. This was a result of having been barred from the park as a young boy because of his father's political beliefs. Carnegie was quoted as saying, and I quote, The man who dies rich dies disgusted, reinforcing his belief that of, that, and that of so many of these entrepreneurs that with wealth comes great responsibility. The example of an enlightened entrepreneur who was philanthropic through his life, and there are many in the book, was George Cadbury. Personally, being a long-time abuser of his product, I simply had to include him as a case in this podcast. Cadbury, like many in the food and confectionery industry, was a Quaker. It is suggested in the book that Quakers were drawn to this industry sector due to their temperance and the desire to provide an alternative to alcohol. Cadbury started in his father's small business, making chocolate that was largely consumed as a drink. In those early days, chocolate was bitter and not eaten as it is today in bars. The business struggled and he lived in very austere conditions, writing that he was spending around £25 a year, that's about £800 in today's money, for all of his personal expenses, including charity. Cadbury heard of a Dutch inventor who had worked out how to extract the butter from cocoa and create fine, pure chocolate. He immediately bought the technology, and of course the rest is history. He noted, as did others, that the living conditions of his workers were terrible, and so created the town of Bourneville, outside of Birmingham. The name is derived from the stream that traverses the estate, the Bourne River. He first built a large, light and airy factory for all of his workers, and then soon followed this with a park-like estate, providing housing and other social amenities. He set out to, and I quote, alleviate the evils which arise from the insanitary and insufficient accommodation supplied to large numbers of the working classes, and of securing to the workers in factories some of the advantages of outdoor life, with opportunities for the natural and healthful occupation of cultivating the soil, end quote. Bourneville had large amounts of open space and one could cross the, the state entirely through paths and parklands. All homes had allotments and land for growing food and he was fond of pointing out to visitors that the land yielded 58 pounds of food per acre, a considerable sum relative to the 5 pounds per acre that the same land yielded before his development. The estate was managed by a village trust made up of workers Another common theme among these entrepreneurs was their desire for participatory involvement and management. Death and infant mortality rates in Bourneville were half of that in Birmingham, this largely due to an investment of medical facilities, including an on-site doctor and dentist, for all workers, and this service was provided free. This may seem commonplace today, but bear in mind this was 1909. 
Cadbury continued to conduct the daily scripture reading at the factory till his peaceful death in 1922. A thousand people attended these readings each morning, the number limited to the capacity of the largest venue at the factory. Cadbury believed, and I quote, that it is just as important that money should be made rightly as it should be spent rightly, end quote. In these times in which we live of fake news, rampant consumerism, shameless self-promotion and the vacuousness of social media, the lives, I believe, of these ten men who lived with courage, fortitude, determination, faith and humility should be something we all aspire to. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this podcast. Please feel free to share this with your network or for those who you think might benefit. Have an absolutely wonderful week ahead.